We're going to read from Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zariah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltael, and Sheltael the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matna, and uh, Matna? Matan? How would you say that? Matan? Oh, there's, there's a TH there. And Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon uh, to the Christ, 14 generations. So do you believe that every word of Scripture is breathed out by God? Every word. Our church's statement of faith says that the Bible will remain to the end of the world, the supreme standard and final authority by which all matters of life and doctrine should be tested. Do you believe it? Well, members of Emmaus Road, you do believe it because that's part of our statement of faith. What does this genealogy in the first part of Matthew chapter 1 have to do with life and doctrine? As I mentioned last week, for most of us, this is going to produce a lot of head scratching or at least, you know, some eyes just kind of glazing over. I don't know if as those names were read out, if you sort of felt yourself just starting to think about, you know, last week's dinner or the job you still have to finish at home. And after last week, perhaps you thought to yourself, maybe there is more to this genealogy than meets the eye. Maybe there is something in it. And then you tried to look at it this week and you thought, yeah, I still don't know how this is anything more than a list of names. Well, you are in good company. When I began my own study of this passage this week, that is basically where I was at. But as I spent more time looking at it 
and looking up its connections to the Old Testament and the significance of what this genealogy means, I came to be more excited yet again about the Word of God and in particular this passage. I don't know about you, but I don't think I have ever heard a sermon on one of the genealogies in the Bible. So we're all going to be in for an interesting ride this morning. And it is my goal to show you why even this passage is pulsating with promise and is worth your time. But I hope that by the end of this, you'll see the significance of this passage and rejoice yet again in God's story and in His gospel. This morning, uh, we'll follow the five main sections of this passage with these headings. Firstly, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Second, son of Abraham. Third, son of David. Fourth, son of Joseph. And fifth, son of God. You see, Matthew is trying to tell his readers through this, here comes the son. Can you see him? Let's pick the fruit of this family tree with Bibles and hearts open. Beginning with the first section, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not every sermon that you get a whole point on just one verse. Uh, But there is so much in this opening line. Uh, But before I get to that, let me be clear about a couple of background details Uh, We don't know for sure that Matthew, uh, one of the 12 apostles, uh, actually wrote this book. Uh, Historically, the church has attributed it to Matthew and did so from early on. Uh, But the book itself doesn't tell us that Matthew is the author, in the same way that all the four Gospels don't tell us explicitly that they, uh, the name of the one who wrote it. But at the very least, from what we know of the Apostle Matthew in the four Gospels, uh, he would certainly be a good candidate for authorship. And so for those reasons, <clears throat> I think the tradition is most likely correct, and we'll, I will therefore from this point refer to this as the Gospel of Matthew. And speaking of Gospel, uh, I want to be clear on what I mean when I use that term. Uh, as I've said several times over the last few weeks, the word Gospel means good news. And so the apostles and the biblical authors, they used this term, Gospel, to refer to the good news of Jesus Christ as did Jesus himself, and the good news of his life, death, and resurrection, and what that has accomplished for us is what we mean when we use the term gospel. But a couple of centuries after all the apostles died, one of the church fathers named Justin Martyr used this word to refer to these four books that we have at the beginning of our New Testaments, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he writes, uh, yep, he writes, for the apostles... In the memoirs composed by them, which are called Gospels, have thus delivered unto us what was enjoined upon them. So you can see there that he is already referring to these four books as Gospels. And you can understand why the church would do that. They started to call these because in these narratives are all about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and his message. And so occasionally I might refer to this book as a gospel or the gospel of Matthew or his gospel. And if I do, just so you're clear, I'm using it in that sense. Uh, But I will do my best to use it only when the context is clear. Well, let's look at Matthew's epic opening line for his gospel in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. You know, of all the captivating, attention-gripping opening lines that Matthew could have chosen, this is the one he went with. I mean, personally, I kind of love John's opening. Like, that's just, you know, in the beginning. Well, as I mentioned last week, this is not a captivating opening line to most readers today, most of us at all. But for a Jew who was waiting for the Messiah, this opening sentence is absolutely loaded. And it begins with the first two words in the Greek, Biblos Geneseos. Our English Bibles translate that as the book of the genealogy. And for the Jewish reader familiar with the Greek Old Testament, which would have been most in Matthew's day, which is also known as the Septuagint, that would have immediately brought to mind a couple of key verses. You see, we see those two exact Greek words in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, 1. These are the generations after God has created Adam and Eve and, and uh, people in, in that narrative. It, it says those exact words. And then in, at the beginning of chapter 5, before the author uh, goes on to give the genealogy of Adam, he says those same two words again. Biblos Geneseos. You can see that our English Bibles translate them uh, slightly differently for various reasons, but there would have been no mistaking the connection for the Greek reader, especially with Genesis 5.1. As a first century Jew, you knew that what you were about to read was something that connected back to your roots. You know, there are various genealogies throughout the Old Testament, so to see this, you'd be thinking... Whoever Matthew is about to talk about must be someone very special in our history. And who is that person? Well, it is Jesus Christ. Now, kids, can any of you tell me if Christ was Jesus' last name or not? Was it his last name? Did he get that from his parents? Were their names Joseph and Mary Christ? Nope, getting some shaking of the heads. That's right. That wasn't his surname. Christ is actually the Greek word uh, Christos, or that's our English transliteration of it. And the Christos is the Greek word which was used for the Hebrew word Meshiach or Messiah. And those words mean the anointed one. And those terms uh, in Jesus' day came to be uh, a title used to refer to the one that the Jews were anticipating would fulfill the prophecies of Scripture. The one who would reign over Israel and restore the kingdom and David's throne. We'll talk a little bit more about that term and what it means. But it's important to recognize that Christ originally referred to the title of who Jesus was. That is, he was Jesus the Christ. He was Jesus who was the Messiah. But his followers began to put the two together as a name and call him Jesus Christ, as we see right here. And this is no coincidence. They haven't put that on just because it's a nice kind of pseudo surname to give to Jesus. They do it. Matthew has done it because he knows that he's writing about not just any ordinary man. He's writing about the Christ, the very one that his people, the Jews, had been waiting for for hundreds of years. And this very first sentence makes that absolutely clear. 
As we saw last week, Matthew goes to great lengths in his gospel to show how Jesus' life fulfills key parts of the Old Testament. He's constantly quoting it, alluding to it, saying it is fulfilled here. And it's rather clear from the way that he writes that his audience would have known and appreciated a lot of the Jewish background to his book. And that's also true of the rest of this sentence. Kids, tell me, whose names other than Jesus's do you see in this verse? Yeah? David, David yep. Abraham, that's right. These are two very big names in Jewish history. And now to us, this might seem like, you know, just kind of two of the big wigs of the Old Testament, right? Why these two? Why not Jacob or Moses or Elijah or, or one of those other big wigs? What's so special about these guys? Why these two in particular? Matthew singles out. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. That's what we'll discover as we explore these various sections of the genealogy. And that brings us to the first one, and our next heading, Son of Abraham. Now, I know I've mentioned this recently, but kids, you know the song, right? How's it go? Father Abraham and many sons. Yeah, that's right. Many, as we can see. Now, there's a reason that Abraham is called Father Let's read verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Matthew chooses Abraham intentionally. If you skip over to Luke 3, you'll see that Luke 3, in his genealogy, traces Jesus' line all the way back to Adam. And there are some wonderful things to talk about regarding that connection between Adam and Jesus, but we'll save that for when we preach Luke 3. Or you can ask me about it later. Matthew's interests begin at Abraham. Why? Well, for the Jews, their national identity began with him. From Adam to Abraham, the human race was God's creation, but it wasn't until Abraham that he separated a particular people for himself. Now, if you're taking notes, write down Genesis 12, 15, and 17. It is in those chapters that you see most clearly God making promises to Abraham and making a covenant with him. Here's what he says in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." The interactions that God has with Abraham in chapters 15 and 17 after this, they only serve to build on this initial promise as God makes his covenant with him. I encourage you to go and read those chapters. A covenant is an agreement that has promises, but also conditions and terms. And there are consequences for obedience or disobedience. Now, if you do this, then this will happen. If you don't do this, then this will happen. 
And so parts of God's covenant with Abraham were promises that he gave to him and that he actually fulfilled. God did make him into a great nation and all families on earth were blessed through him. He did make him into a great nation and he brought them into the promised land. But as the story unfolds of Abraham and his sons and and their uh, tribes and the people that they create, there's always a bit of a concern about how long this is going to last. Will they actually get there? Will his people, will Israel remain faithful to their side of the covenant? And this happens even right from the beginning of the nation's life. Rather than trusting that God can do the impossible and bring forth a child from Sarah's old womb, Sarah suggests that, you know, they try to have children through her servant, which Abraham agrees to. That's, that's not a great start. But despite their disobedience, God performs a miracle and Sarah gives birth to Isaac. Then, of course, God told Abraham to sacrifice him, even though he was his only son. God provides for the sacrifice after Abraham shows his faith and obedience in a, in a beautiful foreshadowing of the gospel. And Isaac marries Rebekah, who gives birth to Esau and Jacob. And from the beginning, God tells Rebekah that the natural order would be turned upside down and the younger one would serve the older. You, can you see that captured in Jacob's name, which means supplanter or cheater. And then Jacob wrestles with God and has his name changed from Jacob to Israel. And he then has 12 sons who basically become the 12 tribes of Israel. But one of them is singled out specifically. Now, kids, can you tell me which son of Jacob does Matthew highlight in verse 2 of this genealogy? Oh, no, good try. Later down the track, it's on the screen. Which one out of Jacob's sons does he mention? Does he name? No, good try. It's up there. Jacob, the father of Judah. Judah. Well done. Judah. Why Judah? Well, even way back in Genesis, his father Jacob anticipated what later prophets would say about him and his line. In Genesis 49 verse 10, Jacob says this about him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The scepter was a symbol of rule. It was what kings had. It was symbolic of their reign over their people. And so as we read in Micah 5.2, You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. The coming Christ, the coming Messiah, the coming King. He would come from the tribe of Judah. That is why Matthew singles him out. That is why he mentions the name of Judah. And Matthew mentions his brothers perhaps to indicate that they serve the basis of the Jews' national identity. So already in these first few generations of the genealogy, Matthew is ticking all the boxes about who Jesus is. 
about him being the Christ? Do you see him? You know, if you're looking for the rare and endangered Gouldian finch, does anyone know what I'm talking about? There's a few. Oh, yeah, definitely you. Oh, there, there you go. Which has been spotted at uh, Lee Point in recent years. Then you need to know what you're looking for. You know, you're, you're looking for a bird which is about the size of a mouse, and it's very colorful. It has a green back and a, a purple chest and a yellow stomach. It's got a black or a red face, and you'll find it in open woodland and grassland. That's how you identify it. You, you, you figure out what are the things that I am looking for to find this rare bird. This is what Matthew is doing. There were certain boxes that needed to be ticked in order for someone who claimed to be the Messiah to have a credible claim to that title. Do you recognize him? One of the reasons that we find some of these parts of the Bible a bit boring is because we haven't sought to grasp who Jesus is in all of his fullness. We don't all have to be experts in the Old Testament, but this ought to be something that we continue to grow and deepen in, in our faith. And it's not just so that we can have more knowledge about Jesus. After all, this genealogy in Matthew 1, it's not a Jewish family history. This is a Christian one. For all who have been adopted into God's family through faith in Jesus Christ, you've been grafted into this family tree. So if you're having an identity crisis or you have had one or you will have one, come back to this. Your family tree is not just the one that you were born into. It's also the one that you were born again into. Whatever has happened in your own family history, even if it is something that you are ashamed of, you are now part of this great family. And this is a family that welcomes you in by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Any past that you might be ashamed of is no longer the definitive and final word of who you are. Speaking of family history to be ashamed of, let's keep reading. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Some of the men in this list have things written about them in the Old Testament, but others, they're just, well, names on the list. What's far more interesting, however, is the women who are mentioned. Now, having women in a genealogy in the ancient world was, was not exactly the norm, it happens a little bit in the Old Testament, uh, and obviously it happens here, but this was not usually done. The, the family line was normally traced through the father. And moreover, if you wanted to show how good and how noble your family tree was, you wouldn't include these women. 
If you wanted to boast about your family history, then you would mention the the well-known matriarchs of Israel's history, like Sarah or Rebecca or Leah or Rachel. It would be like proudly saying that, you know, the murderous Queen Mary I, also known as Bloody Mary, was your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. And then failing to mention that Queen Elizabeth II was also in your family line. Of course, you couldn't do either of those things anyway because Mary never had any children and Elizabeth is not in her line as a result. But you get my point. Matthew mentions these women to make a point. The story of Tamar giving birth to Judah's sins, Perez and Zerah, is not the high point of either of their lives. Tamar was Judah's widowed daughter-in-law, and if you'd like to read more about that, you can find it in Genesis 38. Not a good story. As for Rahab, uh, there is some debate about who this Rahab is, but it's most likely referring to the Canaanite prostitute of Joshua 2 and 6, who helps the Israelite spies and is later spared by them when God gives them the city of Jericho. And then, of course, there is Ruth. As we heard from Hugh a couple of weeks ago, she was a Moabite, a foreigner, not somebody who was from Israel. And then to dip into the next section, Solomon's mother is mentioned, but without even using her name. Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is Bathsheba. And my guess is that Matthew names her this way to draw attention to not just Bathsheba, but the heinous sins that David committed to both her and Uriah in order for her to become the mother of Solomon. Again, not a proud piece of family history. So out of the list of these women, we have one whose main story in the Bible revolves around some very questionable moral decisions, two who were more upright in what they did, but were not even Israelites, and one whose inclusion in the genealogy was the result of perhaps the worst sin that David committed in his entire life. Such is the family of Jesus. This is your family tree. Perhaps you can relate to this. Perhaps you can relate to the shame of having such skeletons in your own family closet. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not ashamed of his lineage. He's not ashamed of the sins that his uh, forebears and uh, ancestors committed because he came to redeem their sin. And he came to redeem yours. You need not be ashamed of your past anymore, whether your own or something or someone from further back. Now, it does not take away or change what was done. But Christ's redemption is the difference between your own family history determining who you are and His. The difference is that who you are now is determined by who He is. 
not whatever your past might suggest you are. And who is he? He is the king who sits on David's throne. That brings us to the next section. Kids, if I asked you who was the first king that comes to mind for you from the Old Testament, who would you say? Let me see if somebody else is willing to talk, and then I'll ask you. Anyone? Any others? All right, go, Mia. Jesus is a first... Well, that's a good answer. Any others from the Old Testament that come to mind? (laughs) Adults. Who normally would be... Oh, Zion. Okay. No more answers from my children. They are not being helpful. (laughs) Who would normally... I mean, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? You see where I'm going. David, right? If there's a king from the Old Testament that most people would be familiar with and think of first, it would be David. Historically, he wouldn't actually be considered the most impressive of Israel's kings. Other kings who only get a few lines in the Bible, like Omri, they actually expanded Israel's kingdom much more than David did. They turned it into more of a, of a you know, superpower, if you want to call it that, in the ancient world. But God doesn't look at the outside. He looks at the heart. And so David has been remembered as the greatest of Israel's kings. Not because he expanded their rule and their territory more than any other king, but because he was a man after God's own heart. But not only was he that, a man after God's own heart, he was the man with whom God made promises and a covenant just as he did with Abraham. You'll find that in 2 Samuel 7. Here's what he says from verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But here's the thing. The kingdom didn't last forever. The Davidic dynasty is one of the longest in human history, but it didn't last forever. So what happened? Well, the next verses give us a bit of a clue. God will discipline him, he says, when he does wrong. So David's son Solomon is born and he becomes a king and God reaffirms the covenant with Solomon that he made with David. You'll find this in 1 Kings chapter 9. Let me encourage you to go and read that at some point today. And there, God makes it clear to Solomon that if he obeys, then he will receive the blessings of the covenant. But if he fails to obey, then he will receive the curses of the covenant. And sadly... This is exactly what happens. Solomon himself falls away from obeying God and the kings that come after Solomon, some of whom are mentioned in this very genealogy, don't have a great record. In the children's story Bible that our family reads in the mornings, there's one chapter in it that my kids uh, really liked. It was called, 
Good king, bad king. And it was highlighting the fact that if you go through the books of Kings and Chronicles and look at the history of the kings of Israel and Judah, you do see some good kings, some bad kings. But more often than not, you see bad kings. To give you an idea of the ones that are mentioned right here in Matthew, Rehoboam, he was terrible. He was Solomon's son. And he basically causes the kingdom to split. Abijah was also terrible. Asaph, also known as Asa, that's another thing. A lot of the names are often spelt differently, so that can be a bit confusing sometimes. Uh, but that's how they did it. Uh, Asaph, he, he was a good king. Jehoshaphat, he was also a good king. Joram, he was terrible. Uzziah, also known as Azariah, well, he was, he was better. Jotham, he was, he was better. Ahaz, he was bad, terrible. Hezekiah, he was, he was good. Manasseh, he was terrible, but he came good in the end, maybe. Uh, Amos, also known as Amon, he was bad. Josiah, he was good. Jeconiah, also known as Jehoiachin, terrible. That, that gives you an idea of those names. And there are a few that Matthew actually skipped over and he didn't include. You'll find them in 1 Chronicles 3, and they were terrible. The story of the kings of Judah, though it had some bright spots, is ultimately a story of how David's sons and his descendants failed to keep the covenant and therefore received the covenant curses for themselves and for the people of Israel. And therefore, David's throne did not last forever. But it foreshadowed one that would. And many of the Old Testament prophets, like Jeremiah, would speak of a righteous branch from the line of David who would reign as king and ultimately fulfill the promise that God gave to David. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And the prophets would speak of the day when God would make a new covenant with his people, and he would write the law on their hearts. As yet again, Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, 33, the branch from David's family tree would be the one who would bring in this new covenant. He would be, as other prophets called him, the Messiah, the Christ, the king on David's throne. Matthew is intentionally drawing our gaze to this covenant, to these covenant and messianic promises that have been focused in on David's throne and on his line. Because he wants us to see who Jesus is. Here comes the Son. In Matthew's day, there was lots of speculation about who the Messiah would be and, and what he would do. So you can imagine being a Jew reading this. Imagine growing up and hearing or even reading about the covenants that God made with Abraham and with David. Covenants filled with such great hope and promise. And yet you also know the history 
of your people. And you know that instead of receiving the covenant blessings, your people received the covenant curses because of their unfaithfulness, because of their king's unfaithfulness to the Lord. This is the very reason the Pharisees existed, because they saw that and they thought, well, we want to do everything we possibly can to make sure that we obey. But then you also read in the prophets about this coming Messiah, the son of David, who would bring Israel back to the promised land, this king who would raise the kingdom to be the dominant world power and blessing to the nations that it was supposed to be. Imagine the hope and the expectation and the anticipation building as you read each of these names. Could this be him? But there would be some caution. You've had such great disappointment before, and just like a person who's been hurt by the same friend or potential suitors in the past, you're cautious and, and tentative about whether this really is it. Could this really be him, the son of David, who will sit on his throne? That brings us to our fourth section the son of Joseph. Finally, we get to the section of whose son Jesus actually is. Well, sort of. As it was supposed, as Luke says. Kids, can you tell me, who was Jesus' dad? Is this going to be a serious answer? All right. The Holy Spirit? Kind of. We'll keep working on that Trinitarian theology in our devotional time. Yes? Joseph. Joseph. That's right. Thank you, Mia. Now, the, the last person from our last section in verse 11 was Jeconiah, also known as Jehoiachin. And Jeconiah was not actually the last king of Judah. But the line flowed through Jeconiah, which is why Matthew records him. No, his brother or his uncle, whose name was Zedekiah, was the king after him. And he was the king when Jerusalem fell to Babylon and the Israelites were taken off into exile. Now this makes sense because in Jeremiah 22.30, the Lord curses Jeconiah for his wickedness. And he says that none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David. And they don't. His sons are put to death in front of him. The disobedience of Israel and its kings finally result in the curses of the covenant. As God promised to Solomon in 1 Kings 9, uh, he says, I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. This was the lowest point of the nation. But they were not utterly destroyed. The hopeful foretelling of the prophets of the coming branch still remained. And we see that even within a couple of generations in Matthew's genealogy. Jeconiah fathers Shealtiel, who then fathers Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, or Zerubbabel, becomes something of a focus of hope for the Davidic promises. 
You see, the prophet Haggai says this about him. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. Once again, another kingly uh, 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 thing that represents the king. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You see, hope is budding. It is beginning to sprout once again. Perhaps this isn't the end of Israel's story. Perhaps the Davidic promise of a shoot that will spring forth from the line of David could truly happen and he could be almost here. We see hope once again rising in the genealogy. Now, everybody else in this genealogy from Abiud through to Joseph's father, Jacob, is unknown to us, aside from what is written here. In Luke's gospel, his genealogy has more names in this time period, which makes sense because from the exile in Babylon, the deportation to the time of Jesus is around 600 years. So you can be pretty confident that there would be more than 14 generations in that time. And there is this nice bit of providence, I think, with Joseph's father's name being Jacob. And given that what we're about to see in Joseph's life has some echoes of the life of the original Joseph in Genesis. Now notice how Matthew phrases this final step in the genealogy. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. I mean... It's kind of obvious, given that the whole way along, Matthew's been saying the father of, the father of, the father of, when he leaves that out. Now, Matthew just calls the guy who's supposed to be Jesus' dad, the husband of Mary. That's because he's about to tell us why Joseph isn't actually Jesus' dad. And we'll get into that next week. And here we have the fifth and final woman that Matthew includes in the genealogy not a foreigner or of morally questionable character, but there certainly would have been some questions about her pregnancy and plenty of shame if people didn't believe her story about how she became pregnant. God's not ashamed of that. We'll hear more about them next week. The line from Abraham to Jesus, the one who is called the Christ, is complete. The son of Abraham, the son of David, and the supposed son of Joseph. As our hope has been clear throughout, this genealogy is about far more than just seeing Jesus' earthly family tree. Matthew is pointing the way to who he is and why he wasn't just your average Galilean carpenter come prophet. That brings us to our final section, Son of God. Now, this passage doesn't use this phrase about Jesus, but I hope you'll see why I've chosen it. Kids, has anyone been counting how many generations there are in each of these sections? Anyone? Any kind of number of people, kids, budding accountants? No? Well, if you haven't, Matthew helps us out here in verse 17. Let's read. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. How many generations in each section? 14. That's right. Matthew counts from Abraham to David, 14 generations, and from David to Babylon, 14, and then from Babylon to Christ, 14. Except, as I mentioned before, he he skips some. And this is not uncommon because the Greek word that we have translated in our English Bibles as father of actually has a less specific meaning than that. It can refer to somebody who is not just the father, but could even be the grandfather or great-grandfather and so on. That's why Matthew can skip some names. And as mentioned, it was roughly 600 years between Jeconiah and Jesus, which would mean more than 14 generations. So knowing that Matthew has done that, it is clear in this final verse that he has intentionally chosen these names so that there would be three periods of 14 generations each. But the question is, why? Why does he do that? What's so special about 14? I don't know about you, but sometimes I just wish authors of Scripture would be more explicit about what they've said and why. I mean, come on, Matthew. Thanks for telling us about the 14 generations in each period, but can't you just give us another sentence about why 14 is important? Well, I think it's difficult for us because we don't swim in that, we don't breathe that air. And the, the authors of Scripture often leave it for you to continue to dig deeper to know what it means. Well, I think the most convincing explanation is that he is, as I've already said, really making it clear to us that Jesus is the king who would sit on David's throne. Did you pick up on who the 14th name in this whole genealogy was? Abraham being the first. It is David. And not only that, in the Hebrew alphabet, certain letters represented certain numbers. And if you could add up the letters of the name David, well, they actually added up to, you guessed it, 14. Now, I know this seems silly to us today, and it probably looks more like something that you'll find on a conspiracy website, like Infowars or something like that, right? Or perhaps it might just seem like you know, a fun code that you know, kids would, would create to play around and, and you know, have fun with. But this was actually far more common in the ancient world than it is today. It was a practice that historians have called gematria or gematria. So it's actually quite likely that most Jews would have known that David's name added up to 14. This genealogy, it is telling us the story of God's promise to Father Abraham, which leads to the climax and the homing in of the covenant in King David. And from David, Judah spiraled down into the collapse of the Israelite kingdom and its exile in Babylon. You're tracking that from Abraham, it sort of reaches this great height to David. But then from David, it spirals down into the, into the uh, exile of Babylon, Babylon. And then from there, from the end of the kingdom, there is this sense of a building back up in anticipation of the coming of the son. The son of Abraham the son of David, 
the son of Joseph, the son of God. I don't know if you listened to, did anybody listen to the, the song that I sent out in the email this week? No, no, we had a couple. Go and listen to it. Firstly, because it's really interesting to hear somebody put a genealogy to song. <laughs> it's kind of funny to think, you know, Abraham who fathered Isaac. Yeah. But the best thing about that song is that it, it, it captures musically this sense of anticipation and building of the coming of the one who would sit on the throne of David. And finally, when we get to Jesus, that is the, the sense that Matthew wants you to, to feel. These Jews who were still waiting for this promise to be completely fulfilled and, and the speculation of who the Messiah was and what he would be. Matthew wants you to read that and to, to see, here he is. He is the one. He is the one who would fulfill the promises to Abraham. The one who would sit on the throne of David, who would be the eternal king. The one from the line of Judah, from the line of Jesse. He invites you with this genealogy to read on. To see how Jesus is that one who came. He's already made it clear that he believes that this is who Jesus is. And the rest of the book will tell you how that is so. Here comes the son. Can you see him? If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, he is ready and waiting to adopt you into his family tree. And no matter what your own family tree might say about you, no matter what your own history might say about you, I hope you've seen from this little family history session that Jesus came to redeem people of all kinds of backgrounds. Just as foreigners like Rahab and Ruth were welcomed into the family tree, so all people everywhere are now called to repent and believe in Christ. There is no sin so heinous. There is no history so shameful that you are out of reach of God's grace. Our sin condemns us to the wrath of God. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that we can be saved when we turn from our sin and trust in Him for redemption. Would you trust Him today? And brothers and sisters, this Jesus that we put our faith in, whose gospel we proclaim week in and week out, is the promised Messiah, the Christ who had been foretold and foreshadowed for centuries. I hope this spurs you on to go even deeper into the faith that you profess. Jesus is the redeemer of our sin, and he is that not because he just decided to be that when he was born of a virgin named Mary. No, he is our redeemer because he is the one to whom Abraham and David and the promises and the covenants that God made with them all throughout the Old Testament points forward to. He is the redeemer who is the, the climax 
of history, of God's story. In Jesus, there is a greater promise and a greater covenant. Why? Because it's a covenant based on his faithful obedience and not ours. As we've seen in this line, there was no one who could keep the covenant perfectly. But he can. Praise God that we aren't kept in the new covenant because of our own obedience. No, we need not fear the curse because he became a curse for us. He was obedient to death, even death on the cross, so that we could have surer promises and unshakable confidence in his redemption. He is the one who will never disobey God or fail his people. He is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, who sits on David's throne for all eternity. Can you see him? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that every word of it is breathed out by you. Lord, help us to continue to treasure it, to see your words of life in it, and to see how through all that you have done in your people in times past, you invite us to enter into your story, to be part of your family. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.